The wisdom of our time teaches different beliefs for different people. But when with our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, we open the first century documents that tell us how the Jesus movement got started, did the early followers of Jesus keep silent about Jesus when they got arrested for teaching about him in the Jerusalem temple? Dr. Luke gives us the answer in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. My dad used to like to aquaplane, and years ago, in fact, I was just a little bitty kid. My dad was aquaplaning. It's like a toboggan that you go in the water. He flipped off it and broke his hip. A lot of you might not realize it, but almost all of my life, my dad was kind of crippled. He walked with a limp because the hip replacement surgery wasn't that good. And so he waited a long time before he did it. But finally, he decided he'd have hip replacement surgery. And so they put him on the bed. They're getting ready. And you've all gone through the routine. I'm there almost every week with somebody. They bring you on the table. The anesthesiologist comes in. The nurse comes in. And then the surgeon comes in. They tell you everything that could happen to you, how your life is totally threatened to the nth degree and make you sign your life away. They even write on your hip, you know, which one it is. And the surgeon was doing that. My dad turned to his surgeon, who was an upstate New York Jewish surgeon, My dad actually said to him, you know, you have an incredible faith in God. And my dad's orthopedic surgeon just about dropped his teeth. Because to be honest with you, like a lot of the Jewish people that I was raised with, he was Jewish ethnically, but he never went to synagogue because the Jewish history and all that took place, he really just believed in medical science and not really into this religious thing. So he looked at my dad, what are you talking about? He said, well, because in the next two and a half hours, you're going to cut my leg open, you're going to separate all those tendons, probably cut some of the tendons if you have to, you're going to cut my bone, you're going to take a saw, and you're going to cut my old tip, and then you're going to drill a hole, just like working at Home Depot, you're going to drive this metal shaft down in, you're going to put the ball in, replace the socket, you're going to do all this stuff, and then you're going to sew the whole mess up, and then you're totally dependent upon God. Because my dad looked at his orthopedic surgeon and said, can you heal? Can you heal all those things that you've done in my leg? And the doctor laughed and quickly told the anesthesiologist to put my dad under. And uh, the, the Lord awakened in my dad's orthopedic surgeon kind of a surge of spirituality. So when he got an invitation to go to one of his relatives, I think it was his nephew's bar mitzvah, he decided with his wife that he would go. And he decided that he would not only go, but he would invite my dad and my mom, who was alive at the time, and Mary and I ended up going as well. So we go to this Jewish bar mitzvah service. That's when you're 13 years of age, you read the Tanakh, which is the Jewish scriptures, you read it in Hebrew, and it was just hilarious time. Like The guy's wife was a very strong New York Jew that spoke like I spoke, really loud and everything. So through this whole service, she keeps saying to me, like, they'd say something in Hebrew, and she said, what does that mean? Where do I look at my program? So here I am, a goyim, a Gentile, because that's what my major was in an Old Testament. So I'm reading the Hebrew, telling her this is what it means, and then at the end of the service, when we stand up to welcome Elijah, I'm saying, you need to stand up now and look to the east, and we're saying we're welcoming Elijah, all this kind of stuff. Well, then we ate at their house that night, had a really neat meal, celebrating this great thing. And my dad kind of kicked me under the table, and he gave me that look, and I knew, he said, my dad was giving me the thing, saying, you need to try to talk to him. Now, my dad was powerful with Madison Square Garden, 50,000 people out there. 
But to be honest with you, my dad wasn't quite as strong around the table with his Jewish orthopedic surgeon. So I'm thinking, I want to be really honest with you. Naturally, I would say, Dad, why do we need to talk about Yeshua? That's Jesus, Ben David, the son of David. Why don't we just have a really great discussion about the history of Judaism? And why don't we talk about this great resurgence that we're having in, in, in lighting candles again? And your surgeon's relatives just did a beautiful ceremony that's been done hundreds of thousands of times. It was done in the same language that Moses spoke 1,400 years before Christ. And this is incredible religious tradition. Why don't we just talk about that? We can even talk about Israel going back to the Holy Land. Why don't we just talk about that? And I want you to know that that's where a lot of you think. The dominantly accepted view is the idea that there's Christians and they do their religious thing. And there's Jews that do their religious thing. And there's Buddhists that do their religious thing. And then there's Hindus that do their religious thing. And what tolerance means is that we all say that we've got different brands of religion for different people. Doesn't that sound really good? I want you to open up your Bible because one of the things I want you to understand is this is a first century document. And I'm going to take you back to a time when there was no St. Peter's in Rome. So there's no Roman Catholics. There's no St. Paul in London. No Anglicans. In fact, to be honest with you, there's just Jews. We're going to have two Jewish men. And just to set the scene, turn to Acts chapter 4. Peter and Paul, who are Galilean fishermen that hung out with Jesus for three and a half years... Jesus has now been crucified about a month and a half before this, several weeks before this. And they're now in the very temple that is controlled by the high priests of Judaism. So you'll understand this setting. They have just been in this big colonnade of Solomon called Solomon's Colonnade. There's thousands of people, and the people, Peter and John, have just healed a crippled man, and they didn't do orthopedic surgery on him and put a new hip. They just said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And the guy stood up. He's leaping and praising God. His ankle bones receive strength. His feet are renewed. And the guy hasn't walked in 40 years, and now he's alive. So the religious leaders have a really big problem because thousands of people are now beginning to listen to these guys. And what the men are saying is basically this. You just crucified Jesus. You all know him. And that was true because it wasn't done in the corner. They knew he'd done the miracles. They knew he was from Galilee. They all know the story. You don't crucify three men and not have the whole city know about it. They'd all gone by the cross. Now Peter and John are making this incredible claim. You made a mistake about who he was, but God said he was the Messiah of the Old Testament. That's what I want you to understand. These are all Jewish guys. They're having an inter-Jewish discussion. And what Peter and John are saying is, your scriptures of Moses, in fact, one of the things that Peter just got finished saying in the end of chapter 3 in Acts was this. You believe in Moses. Everybody in the audience raise their hand. Yes, I believe in Moses. Peter says, well, Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that a great prophet would come. And when that prophet comes, he's going to be greater than Moses. And if you don't listen to him, you'll be cut off from your people, which was a very strong statement. It's life or death. And then Peter made the audacious claim. He said, well, Jesus of Nazareth was that prophet. The end of chapter 3 says this. 
the great promise that you as Jewish people, and you happen to live in a world that's been incredibly blessed by the Jewish people. They're less than 0.2%. They're 2% of the world's population, what they are. Whenever you hear about the big Jewish conspiracy, they're only 2% of our population. There's more Muslims in the United States, just a little bit more, about 3%. And the next time you think that the Jews and the Muslims are taking over the United States, they're a little tiny minority. So stop being afraid. But you know what? I could spend the rest of the day telling you about the blessings that Jewish people have brought to the world. And it all began when God made a promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, through your offspring, all the world's going to be blessed. But it was very specific. The word offspring in Hebrew is a word that can speak of all the Jewish people, but it also can mean the special seed that God promised Adam and Eve, that Eve would give birth eventually to a great serpent slayer that would destroy the curse of death. And what Peter had the audacity of saying is, it happened. Jesus of Nazareth is the one that God said would bring a blessing to the world. 2,000 years later, like you've all heard of Jesus, whatever you believe about Jesus this morning, I want you to know he's the most powerful, influential, religious teacher that ever lived, just to approach it from that standpoint. But this is long before those days. This is just a few weeks after he died, and the apostles are saying he rose again. So what happens, we begin our story, the temple police show up. Turn to Acts chapter 4, and the reason we're going to look here is this is what's important, so look at it. Take it out, look at it. And the setting, the first paragraph is an interesting thing. Peter and John are going to get arrested for healing the crippled man, which is an ironic thing. Like, how many of you think you should throw people in jail that are able to help cripples walk and haven't walked in 40 years? That's one of the ironies of this passage. Second of all, they're going to get arrested because they're telling everybody, Jesus that was crucified is now alive. Look how we started on the first paragraph. The priest and the captain of the temple guard And the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were still speaking to the people. The idea is it's an action scene. Peter's preaching like I was just preaching to you. And right in the middle of this, the temple guard shows up. And something you wouldn't know, so I want to fill it in. The Sadducees didn't believe there was any resurrection from the dead. So some of you have the idea, well, I don't believe there's resurrection. When I die, I just die. I'm like a dog. I'm just gone. And that's one of the belief systems. But you might think, well, that's a very modern, progressive way to live. The Sadducees, who actually controlled the temple worship in Jerusalem at the time, they believed that. They believed that you live your life, you got to live for the politics of your day, the religion of your day, you need to do good works. And they're actually controlling the temple worship. They don't believe there's any resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees, on the other hand, if we go through the book, they're going to believe really strongly there is. That's going to be one of the conflicts. So Dr. Luke, in teaching you, want to understand you've now got a group of religionist priests that control this beautiful temple. By the way, so you'll have a feel for the temple. It was more beautiful than the Dome of the Rock. If you go to Jerusalem with us today, there's an incredible, beautiful, you've all seen pictures of it. Every picture of Jerusalem has the Dome of the Rock. It's a mosque that was built by Omar. And it's an incredibly beautiful mosque. But the temple that Peter and John were preaching in made that building look terrible. It was an incredible, gorgeous place. We've got a beautiful, religious place. And Peter and John are preaching in it, and they said the temple police are greatly disturbed. They have it, and they want to get rid of these guys because they're proclaiming in Jesus. I want you to look at this because this is the central theme that Dr. Luke wants you to think about. 
The reason the Jewish authorities, the temple police, the priests, the Sadducees are upset is the apostles are not only saying, hey, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees that they had to deal with all the time believe that. But they're actually making the claim, no, in Jesus of Nazareth, there is a resurrection. It's happened. That's what they were claiming. I want you to understand that the basic bedrock is what do you believe happened to Jesus? Because that's the big issue. Lots of people ask, why shouldn't I believe? Why should I believe in Jesus? I mean, I'm exposed to Hindu kids. I'm exposed to Buddha kids. I'm exposed to Chinese people. They're having a resurgence of Confucianism. What's all the big deal about Jesus? This is the big deal about Jesus. Read all you want to about Buddha. He's a kachatriya from the warrior class. He was a nobleman. His father protected him from suffering and poverty. In adulthood, after getting married and having some kids, he went out and found out, hey, people die and they get old and they have pain and suffering. And he decided to find the answer to pain and suffering. And he went into the Hindu way, which is the ascetic way. He starved himself. He fainted in a river. When he fainted in the river and woke up, he said, this is stupid. That's not the way to have victory in life. So what he decided was that the way to have victory over suffering was if you learn to internally not have so much feeling about it. If I can develop techniques that will help you to not feel suffering and pain so badly, that will help to alleviate suffering. He began to propagate that all over the place. He became one of the great dominant religions in the world, especially in Asia. And he lived to be an old man and he died. You can study it for yourself. And you can learn some powerful insights into human existence from Buddha. But Buddha never claimed that he was going to rise again from the dead. If you're a school teacher, you should study Confucius because he is the patron original school teacher. He's the first person, and maybe in history, that made his full-time profession to teach. So he is your founder in many ways. Confucius actually teaches a whole lot about education and teaching and how to help people understand tradition. And that's where if you meet Chinese, you bow and everything. Confucius lived to be an old man, was persecuted a lot because of what he was teaching, then he died. If you're a Muslim, Muhammad is one of the most powerful, influential, admirable people that you'll ever meet. Like if you want a great human hero, hero, he's a great warrior. He was a great ethicist in many ways. Like don't demonize him, but I want you to know something, Muhammad. Like Like he became an old man. He died. If you're a Muslim, you can go and visit his tomb and you can venerate his place. You say, well, Dave, why are you teaching this morning? I want you to know something. I am not teaching you this morning about religion. I'm teaching to you about the only person that ever lived on this planet that died. They put big spikes through his wrist. They put big spikes through his feet. And then to make sure he was dead, a soldier put a big spear in his side. And he was dead, 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 like a thousand, thousand, thousand other Jews. But on the third day, the man that I'm reading his message to you today, Peter and John that are preaching in this text went into his tomb on the first Sunday after Jesus was crucified. And all that was left on the shelf where the body of Jesus had been were grave clothes. And that's what they're telling people about. I am not talking this morning 
about religion. Because if you want religion, I'm going to tell you as your pastor, if you want religion, Peter was in one of the most beautiful places of religion that you could ever go. If you want ritual, they had incredible ritual. If you want tradition, it went all the way back to the beginning of time. This was the religion. They were in the temple. What does Peter say? He says, you are arresting me because I am claiming in this Jewish temple that Jesus rose again from the dead. They put him in prison all night long, and the next paragraph, we get to hear what does Peter actually say to all these religious leaders in the first century. Look at it. It's really exciting. In verse 5, it says, the next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teacher of the law. So we got all the Jewish hierarchy. And by the way, this is all Jewish at the time. Peter and John are Jewish. All the priests are Jewish. All the specialists in the law are Jewish. Talking just about Jewish people. He says, and Annas was the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John and Alexander, the other men of the high priest family. Just to give you an aside on this, all of these guys are, re- are related because Annas isn't really strictly the high priest. And so you'll have some people say, well, because Caiaphas is the high priest. But what we know from first century culture is Annas is the big daddy behind this family, kind of like a spiritual mafia, you might say, only without some of the violence. You understand what I'm saying? Annas is the godfather. Caiaphas is the present high priest. So Luke isn't an error. What I want you to understand is that the Bible is telling you, hey, there's nepotism here. How many of you have ever been exposed to nepotism in your workplace? That people, it's not fair. And some of you say, well, man, where's the God of the universe? I can't believe I've experienced so much injustice and nepotism. There was nepotism in the Jerusalem hierarchy. The ones that were controlling the Jerusalem culture and the Jerusalem priesthood didn't even believe in the resurrection. So there's nothing new under the sun. And I want to tell you something. If you follow religion, it'll always end up in this kind of thing. If you really get underneath, you'll find out there's injustice, there's unfairness, there's embezzling of funds, there's all kinds of weird things that happen. That's not what I'm asking you to follow today. I'm asking you to read this book because this book talks to you honestly about what's going to happen with Annas, what's going to happen with Alexander, what's going to happen with Caiaphas, what's going to happen with these people. And God is so gracious that he actually gives them another chance to respond. Look what it says. It says that they had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them, by what power and by what name did you do this? Now, what do they mean? By what power and by what name did you do this? Remember the this. What is the this? Everybody tell me. What's the this? The healed cripple, okay? That's the big focus. The guy's still with them. If you, if you get healed and you haven't walked in 40 years, you hang out with the guys that the Lord used to give you healing. So this is the big thing in the trial. We're actually having a trial about a crippled man that's been healed. Now, how many of you think you should get arrested for healing crippled men? That's the first thing that Texas is telling you. This is crazy. It's absurd. Why arrest guys for an incredible, powerful miracle? So that's the first thing Peter called attention to. He says rulers, and he's very filled with the Spirit. Peter stands up, ruler and the elder of the people. If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to the cripple and are asked why he was healed, so the very first thing Peter replies is, this is absurd. So you need to learn to be skillful like this. And the very first thing you need to ask yourself is, here's the religious authorities. They're having a big hassle. They even put these guys in prison. The whole big deal is because a person got healed. Religious people will miss the miracle because they're looking at their rules. Religious people will miss the power of God 
because they're much more concerned about their traditions. Our Savior faced this constantly in his work, and that's why as a pastor teacher, I tell you constantly, I know, like when I first started preaching, we founded our church against religion. The people we were working with didn't want me to wear robes. They wanted me to wear jeans. They wanted me to wear an open shirt. Lowry and I started out together. The whole culture wasn't into religion. They wanted reality. And so we did a ton of things not to be religious. I got news for you. Today, religion's really back in. Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, bells and whistles, people that wear robes. It's a big thing again today. And I want to warn you, I'm still preaching the same thing. If you want religion, Peter and John were in one of the most beautiful, powerful. It was even declared by God to be this is the thing. But what the Old Testament proves is you ain't getting there through religion. It's not smells, and it isn't beautiful emotional experiences you have. This morning, who are you depending on? Who was Jesus of Nazareth? That's what I want to understand. Because I really do have a part of me. I would love to have a conversation with my dad, Jewish orthopedic surgeon, about the incredible beauty of the Jewish tradition. But I can't do that. I've got to try somehow to share, no, listen, my Savior that I love is Jewish. And he was the one that fulfills your Jewish prophecies. He is the one that can bring you the incredible hope that when you die, you're going to be able to rise again from the dead. You understand what I'm saying? You say, well, Dave, how do you know that that's true? Because that's what Peter and John did in the first century. They weren't trying to found a new religion. That's when the most ironic thing that's happened. In the name of Jesus, a whole nother religious complex, all different kinds of religious complexes have been generated. And sometimes terrible things have been done in the name of Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about you and your own heart. We're looking at the evidence. The only person that ever lived was Jesus of Nazareth who rose again from the dead. And my entire life is built on that. When I'm in intensive care and I have prayer with you and I'm not sure you're going to make it, it's not my smells or my robes or my degrees or because the beauty of the emotional experiences I've had. I'm going to challenge you. Do you know Jesus? Have you depended upon him? Do you believe he rose again from the dead? Because if you do, you're going to be okay. And I want you guys to know how incredibly precious. No one else can do that for you. So don't fall in. I'm wide open to talk to you. Buddha teaches a lot of cool things about life. I'll be glad to teach you some of the things he said. But he didn't rise again from the dead. And don't tell me, well, I was raised with all this stuff and there's been hypocrisy. Jesus never was a hypocrite, was he? So if he rose again from the dead, you don't have any right to walk away. Don't walk away from Jesus. He's the only one that can beat your greatest enemy. And I don't think it helps so much. If I tell somebody intensive here, listen, you're getting ready to die, and the loved one, the husband is going to lose his wife, I tell the husband, listen, just don't feel so badly about it. Everybody loses their wife. Everybody in the world eventually has someone die. And we just all need to realize that everybody dies, and let's stop feeling so bad about that. How many of you really buy that? I don't buy it. If I'm going to lose Mary, I want to see her again. And don't you dare tell me that it's okay. It isn't okay. And I don't think you buy it either. 
And that's what this text is about. Jesus rose again from the dead. And that's why Peter goes on and says, he says, you crucified him. And yet it says, whom you crucified, look at verse 10, God raised him from the dead, and this man now stands before you, healed. Then he goes back to their Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 118, verse 22, which is a beautiful verse. It predicted in the Psalms that the Jewish people would reject the promised one. He said this, the stone represents the Messiah. It said the stone that the builders rejected has now become the capstone. That's Peter's point. And then he makes an incredible statement that's totally politically incorrect. Salvation is found in no one else. I promise you you're going to hear all. The, the dominant belief today is salvation can be found everywhere. Because all the religions are the same. I first of all want you to know that that's objectively just not true. Salvation's not found everywhere. It says salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name. What's the name? And Peter and John, Jewish guys, say his name is Jesus. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What is Peter and John saying? That is totally politically incorrect. And so all of you emotionally say, it's so mean, it's so vindictive. God isn't being vindictive. Listen, God's son is the light that is trying to touch everybody in the world. So it's not true that God in heaven is not trying to reach people. Jesus is the source of every person that's ever lived on this planet, the source of their life. He is trying to speak to them, the book of John tells us. But I want to share something. It is just dead wrong that it is bigoted for me to tell you that there is salvation in no one else. And this is the heartbeat of the passage, so I want you to understand. Let me give you an illustration. Anybody ever watch Doc Martin? Doc Martin is a British comedy on public television. It's hilarious. Doc Martin has no personality at all. He is totally an idiot. He has a beautiful woman that loves him, and he's a, a total idiot with her. He is so scientific. He's so objective. So the last episode I watched, there was a family that was a doctor in psychology. The, the husband was a doctor of psychology. And the mom was the free spirit. And they had a son that they believed. All of you teachers have been taught, we need to let children express themselves. We don't want to warp their identity. The comedy routine was the son went all around town keying vehicles. He went from one truck to the next. And so all through the program, he is taking a key. You watch him key vehicles. And the doctor catches him keying his vehicle. So he chases him all the way into his domicile. And the psychologist says, this is hard. What are you upset with my son for? He is just acting out. He is expressing himself. And the Doc Martin says, yeah, but he's keying my truck. While he's having this argument with the psychologist's father, the mom is carrying on the sacrifice. They found a varmint dead in the garden, and they are burning it. And it's making horrendous smell. And the doctor actually has found out that their son is very sick. So he says, I've got to see your son. And the mom is saying, no, I'm taking care of my son. The doctor says, without any personality, I've got to see your son now. No, I'm taking care of him. Now, all of you are told this is a great thing. 
If the mom believes in, in holistic medicine and wants to feed him vegetables and roots, that's fine. A lot of you believe that. It's very powerful. When I first started teaching, nobody believed that. Now a bunch of you believe it. And Doc Martin, this British comedy, is joking about that. Because Doc Martin goes in and pulls the cover back on the kid, the kid can barely, barely breathe. The reason he's in this house is because the barman had TB. And there was a cat that had TB from the varmint. And the old lady that used to own the house before the pregnant couple rented it, he just diagnosed with TB. And now this young little boy can't breathe because he has TB. And Doc Martin, without any personality, the mom says, I'll take care of him. And the doctor says, no, you won't. I will take care of him. He was so bigoted. What a totally stupid thing to say in the 21st century. There's many ways to deal with TB. And if somebody wants to sacrifice and burn varmints and have the spirits meet the need, that's a beautiful thing. No, it isn't. That little boy will die if he doesn't get massive doses of antibiotics that can now cure TB. The program made a big joke about that, this dialogue in our culture. But what I want you to know is you got a much more serious disease than TB, and so do I. We die. Every one of us on this planet die. Neither is there salvation. Neither is there resurrection in any other name. It's not bigoted for me to try to present that news to my Muslim friends, to my Jewish friends, to my Hindu friends, to my Confucius friends. There's nothing bigoted about it. I've just found the only human being that ever lived on this planet that died and rose again from the dead. That's why he is the only one. And I'm not asking you to become religious. I'm not asking you to join some religious group. But what I want you to know is I have an obligation to talk to that Jewish surgeon. I didn't get very far that night. But I want you to know that my dad, the last time he went under the knife, he died in that surgery soon after it. The very last thing my dad said, one of the very last conscious things my dad said, he had a splenic artery that they didn't know was leaking. They needed to go in, and they went in for surgery. And the last thing, they, remember the scene I told you about the bed? My dad being wheeled in the surgery, one of his best friends is standing by the bed. One of the last things my dad said to his friend, be sure my surgeon knows the good news about Jesus. One of the greatest heritages my dad gave to me, and I want, to, I want you to have, one of the greatest joys is to be able to have conversations with people and to be able to share with them that you found the one and only Savior that's ever lived on planet Earth who beat our biggest enemy. How do we know it's true? Because Peter and John were declaring this long before there was Christian churches and everything. They were telling Jewish people, he's alive. He's alive. And the Jewish priests say, you got to stop telling people that. And Peter and John don't say, well, we'll stop. They say, no. They said, 
you can't stop us because God the Father has given us the commission. We've got to tell others the good news. Let's pray. I want you to think about something that's happened in your life in the last few days that shows you that Jesus is definitely alive in your life. You got it? Now I want you to think of an unbelieving friend that you could share that with. Think of a friend, and then you ask Jesus' spirit that lives inside of you, Lord, just give me an opportunity just to share with my friend. That'll be the beginning of your witnessing to the power of the resurrected Christ. And that's what I want us to be a part of. And I just close with some of you maybe haven't trusted Jesus yet. And it's very possible that as I was speaking, and you hear these words, neither is there salvation in any other. For there was no other name given among men whereby we might be saved except the name of Jesus. And as I said those words, even today, and even while I've been speaking, you can feel someone talking to you inside. They're saying, hey, that's the truth. Jesus is unique. Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. Jesus did die on the cross for your sins. Jesus powerfully is the one that rose again from the dead. All Jesus is asking you to do, he's asking you to be honest that you need your life cleaned up, that you're not going to beat your sin through your discipline and through good works. So right now, why don't you say, Dear Lord Jesus, thanks for dying for me. And man, I'm really thankful today that I learned that you rose again from the dead. And, and I want the fact that you rose again to become the basis by which I know that I'll rise again. If you trust in the Lord Jesus like that, in an instant of time, his spirit will come to live inside of you. He'll make you a new person. Jesus is the one and only Savior. Peter and John met him. Have you met him?